one good way to receive a Dharma talk is not so much to pay attention to the speaker, whoever the speaker is, but hearing what's being said, but experiencing its impact on you. So you have to stay close to your own mind, heart, while listening. It's not that you necessarily have to agree or like everything that's said, but it may be that you'll learn more by staying close to your responses. We've been talking for a number of evenings now on the shamatha practice. It can be called samadhi as well. learning to fill the heart with calm. How to help that happen. How to invite a certain calmness. Before going into it, uh, a number of times today, two or three, there were questions about the bowing, uh, about the chanting, the bowing of uh, the monks and myself, and people had um, certain attitudes about it or were puzzled by it. And perhaps it's on more people's minds than I know. So let me just say a few words about that. <clears throat> First off, it's, it isn't idolatry. I mean, I, I know that that's a statue when I bow. I really do. <laughs> And I'm not expecting a new bicycle for Christmas. If I, um, and I'm pretty sure the two monks also. Um, I do it because I find it beneficial. I've actually done quite a bit of bowing over the years, a lot of prostrations mostly in private, so I'm kind of coming out of the closet now and just doing it right here. Um, What you're doing is showing, in general, I think many people would agree with me, do it, you're showing appreciation, gratitude. Um, And the icon or the image of the Buddha, Buddha Rupa, is simply something to elicit that, it's a reminder and it actually, it's not that you're worshipping it, uh, because I don't think the Buddha, wherever he is, needs our gratitude. I think he's, if it's according to what we've been reading about the Buddha, he's quite fulfilled. He doesn't need to know that I really appreciate what he did. I don't think so. I mean, maybe it's a nice feeling. So it has to do more with me. It has to do with the bower. Uh, and what we're bowing to ultimately is the Buddha in us, the potential in us. But also, on another level, there was a historical person, the Buddha, the Awakened One, who did give many, many teachings which have been to some degree protected and saved and transmitted over the centuries, mainly by people like those two monks, 2,500 years. It's been kept alive, and the teachings include practices and all kinds of helpful guidelines, and it's kept alive in people. There are concrete, real, live teachers who are living the teaching, and they're available. They're not all over the place in Asia, but they still exist. And so, in bowing, you also, on a certain level, are Uh, saying thank you for the availability of this, which if it's proven to be of value in your life. Now, the bowing is done three times. The bowing is to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The Buddha is, on one level, a historical person. And on a much deeper level, it's the Buddha nature that each one of us has already. It's inherent, intrinsic. 
and it's a matter of tapping it, and that's what the practice is about. The Dharma is the teaching, and on one level, that's scriptures, verbal records of what was said. And another level, that's the actual experience of the truth that the words are pointing towards. In the Sangha, the community of spiritual practitioners, uh, sometimes defined to mean monks, it's also sometimes uh, defined to mean all those who have attained. And one of its main values, at least for me, are, is gratitude to the people who are more advanced than I am, who have given me so much help. I've received a lot of help from different people over the years. And so in bowing to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, they're concrete things. And so that was easy enough to explain. But then people said, you know, uh, most of the people aren't bowing the way you are. Do you know that? And I, was, I said, I don't know, I'm, uh, you know, because my back is to them when I'm doing it. But it would surprise me if they did. Then one person said, um, well, don't you think we should either all bow or just none of us should bow and we should <laughs> just all do it together? And actually, that would be beautiful. Picture if we all uh, waited and then we all bowed at the same time. But here's, here's the problem, at least for me, why I don't, I don't uh, insist or even mention that you do it. When I first, uh, the first time I uh, worked with a Buddhist teacher, uh, it was we didn't know very much about Buddhism, but we wanted to learn how to meditate. We knew that. You know, one drug trip too many, and then the next thing is you want to learn how to meditate. <laughs> uh, but we didn't really have a whole lot of interest in Buddhism. We didn't, you know, we had read the usual liberal arts couple of paperbacks. And this particular teacher just really wanted everyone to to chant. We chanted in Chinese and Korean and we all bowed and there were a lot of customs that we did. And I felt really stupid and awkward. And uh, I did it as a kind of uh, paying my dues, an admissions ticket really. And I did it for quite a while, uh, not fully feeling comfortable doing it or fully even understanding what it was all about. So, and it took years, I would say, before... um, oh, I understand what taking refuge is. And I'm still deepening my understanding of it because it keeps changing. So to me, it makes no sense to, let's say many of you are very new to, not only to Buddhism, but to Vipassana or any form of meditation. And some of you don't really have, you may be very sincerely and uh, very dedicated in your practice, but are not particularly interested in the, the Buddhist part of it. And some of you are. And some of you like to do things, uh, use forms in public, and others of you are shy, and what have you. But I'm mainly interested in what it means. If you were to bow because you want to, because it's beneficial to you, because it's spontaneous and natural for you, then to me that's very beautiful and it's helpful for you. I do it because it's helpful for me. It's a reminder a number of times during the day. And it's helpful. That's why I do it. Now, if we insisted that everyone do it, considering that, relatively speaking, this Buddhism or Buddha Dharma is very new to this culture and many people don't fully understand it or understand it correctly. And if we insisted on it, it would be like, um, be mimicry. I mean, it would just be a bunch of monkeys dressed up in clothes, bowing. Or if we insisted on chanting a bunch of parrots, just saying it. And I don't see much point in that. So what I have much more faith in is just letting the process unfold naturally. And if the practice proves to be useful to you, valuable, precious, invaluable, and it draws you to read more and study more and you suddenly start to feel gratitude and feel connection to where this all came from, then you'll probably want to do it or you may want to do it and then it will be meaningful. So that's all. I... I, if anyone else has any, uh, if anyone feels awkward in any different ways, I don't think any of the teachers at IMS are trying to process anyone into Buddhism. 
Um, and so it's pretty much a um, laissez-faire approach. Anyone have any anything else to say about it that I... Okay. <clears throat> Get back <clears throat> into the reflections on the shamatha practice that we've been doing since Friday night. Up until today, virtually all the questions or problems that came up in interviews had to do with troublesome things in the mind that took our attention away from the breath worries, anxieties, fears, agitation, dullness, sleepiness, the hindrances. And mainly that's what was taking people away from the breath. And that was coming up, as you know, often enough, all too often. And we would, uh, the instructions are to relinquish them and to just ease back into the breath. Today, a new twist, which is actually the way it unfolds and very important to understand. Positive things are starting to happen to people. People are reporting uh, tremendous spaciousness in the mind or real quiet. And then I would say, well, where was the breath at during all this time? Oh, uh, oh. I've so that, you see, the, the power of the samadhi practice is the unwaveringness, the unwavering quality is developed by not being pulled off center, whether it's negative, I hate this, or, oh, isn't this wonderful, I love this. Now, it's not saying, that for, this, for the samadhi practice, please don't think we don't want any, any joy or happiness, to, because the whole point is that the, the calmness brings uh, great joy, happiness, rapture, all kinds of things come along with it. But when we're at a point that we're trying to develop that one-pointedness, that undivided quality. And if, let's say, the mind should feel suddenly uh, as if the ceiling was taken off and the walls taken away and there's a lot of space and the person becomes so fascinated with that spacious quality and it's easy to understand why, it's a nice feeling. Suddenly, uh, you're not cramped. There's a lot more room in the mind. But the issue is still the same. Sorry. Are you with the breath or aren't you? Okay, now it's not saying stamp out the feeling of spaciousness. You know, we have to kill spaciousness. It means you're with the breath wherever you've decided to be with the breath. And it's happening in a much more spacious context. But the key thing is to keep coming back to that one object. Now, while I think of it, I want to, because we'll be... um, talking a bit about samadhi in action, samadhi in, uh, in the moments when we're not doing formal practice tonight. It's somewhat of an analogy, but it's uh, more than that. It's kind of a direct trans- transference from the samadhi practice into an issue that might not seem similar, but it is. Uh, in There's more to it than just samadhi, but samadhi is central to this. One of the traps that the Buddha talks about is getting caught in either uh, praise or blame. Another one is gain and loss, and there are are a number of them like that, but just to take the one of praise and blame, because it's it's in some ways similar. And perhaps if you hear it in this context, then you'll uh, be able to work with it when it comes up. When people blame us, of course we don't like it, and it pulls us off center. Usually we get lost in either getting angry at the person or feeling terrible about ourselves. And when people praise us, the very same thing happens. That was a wonderful Dharma talk. Suddenly, you know, you're gone. You're just living in... in uh, you really think so? Was it really... <laughs> oh, yes, just... Uh, oh, really good, profound... In both cases, the same thing happens. 
Now, when this unwavering quality is developed, you have much more of a chance of staying balanced. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't, you take in the compliment, and it might even, you appreciate it. But you don't lose the centered quality. Now, samadhi, as it more and more becomes part of us, part of our character, it's not meant, it's not reserved just as a, a specialized concentration exercise for meditation centers or just sitting in formal practice at all. That's where a lot of the important work is done. But as it grows, it becomes more a mode, a mode of being, a mode of relating to things. It's a a center, a sense of uh, firmness. It's not the solidity of self or anything of that sort. It's just that now there's an unwavering quality to the attentiveness. And so whatever happens in life, including blame or praise, it can be taken in but we don't necessarily have to be uh, pushed so far to one extreme or so far to the other extreme. Okay. One way to look at what we're attempting to develop We're trying to develop uh, what you might call come what may seeing and come what may doing. The Buddha was once referred to as that, the, the one who could see, come what may. And we could add also do come what may. And it's both of them come together because you, in order to practice samadhi in actual, in ordinary life, in daily life, you have to see and usually you have to do something. Uh, what I mean by seeing is that with practice, what we're learning, and this is more evident in the, in the vipassana part of the practice, we're learning how to look eye to eye, look, fa- look in the eye, or look face to face with no matter what consciousness throws up. In other words, can we get to the point where no matter what the mind throws up, we may not like it, we may be frightened of it, we may dread it, but we, it's workable. Oh, you know, we can just attend to it. In other words, come what may, because the truth is we don't know what's going to come up from one moment to the next, ever. And so some of the things come up, and I know that many of you have already seen this stuff that's been perhaps festering for a long time or things in you that you didn't know you had or cherished self-images that have have crashed during this retreat for a few people because materials have come to the surface, which, is this me? And what we're developing is a kind of seeing that can be so steady that it can be with whatever turns up. No guarantees and we don't know what's going to turn up and yet we... the mind is so fit that it's able to not lose its steadiness, come what may. And come what may doing, which is a bit of what I want to talk about today, and it requires seeing, is the same thing. It has to do with the ability to act with awareness wholeheartedly, no matter what the situation is, no matter what the task is. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, The training in monasteries, in some of the really good monasteries, where the monastic style, there are many different monastic styles, but one main one, uh, has to do with working with your ego in a rather interesting way. It's a little bit like the army, but uh, choices are taken out of your hands. You, you uh, for example, have a sitting schedule that says you sit and walk, and there's no choice. It's not as if you say, you know, I'm not into it right now. It doesn't feel right. I think I'll have a cup of tea. If you're not in the hall sitting, this is one style. I'm not saying it's the only style or that we should all do that. It is very useful for some people at some times. If you're not in the hall, the head monk just comes and gets, he searches where you are. Unless you're sick, you're sometimes dragged into the hall. I've seen it. 
or to interviews where people are afraid to go into an interview. The reason being is you develop a certain strength and also the samadhi develops there because uh, if you only sit when you feel like sitting, then you only get to know the mind that feels like sitting. And if you can sit even though you don't feel like it, you get to know the mind that doesn't feel like sitting. Now, those of you who have uh, even once sat one time when you haven't really felt like it, but you've done your best, you know that at least sometimes that can be, those can be very fruitful occasions. There's no, we don't know what's going to come up. And when we're drawn to the cushion, we can't wait to get into the hall. It could be uh, just rocky and all over the place. And sometimes when we're uh, least want to do it, suddenly we learn something quite important. So that kind of training does that. The other thing that's done in some of these monasteries is, uh, and this is what I mean by come, come what may doing, that is the work is rotated and people do a wide variety of tasks and all kinds of status distinctions, uh, particularly those that people carry around inside of themselves, uh, are not honored. And uh, one teacher I had told me of a situation in Japan where um, a little house was donated to the monastery. Lay people had lived in it. It was right near the monastery. And when they uh, moved, when they donated it to the monastery. And so a particular Zen master and one of the monks went over to, to clean it. The, the, it was the monk's job to clean it. Actually, just the monk went over and the, the Zen master uh, didn't come at the same time. He came a few minutes later just to see how it looked. And as he came there, he saw this monk standing and in a state of aversion because the place was filthy. It was a real mess and had not been taken care of, chaotic and quite unappealing. And the monk stood there with his cleaning implements but hesitated. And the teacher just grabbed away the cleaning materials, pulled up his, they wear these robes, got down on his hands and knees and just cleaned it and turned around to the monk and said, after all you're sitting, this is, you've learned nothing. Okay, now, Vipassana style is not so much that. It's more, the emphasis is more on the contemplative work. But we do go out into the world. The truth is we do even here there's a world. Daily life isn't absent at a place like IMS. There's always daily life wherever we are. We always have to go to the bathroom and eat and all those wash, don't we? When you go to a retreat, do those things stop? You don't need those functions? And so what uh, was implied there, was because the training is very clear, is to wholeheartedly enter into whatever is called for. To work through all kinds of I like and I don't like, or this is work that's uh, yucky, or this work isn't fitting for me. We have a lot of that. Most people do. And this is an attempt for people to shed those preferences which are very often linked to the ego. Um, the best treatment of this that I know of is a, another Zen text which are instructions to the head cook in Zen monasteries originated in China and was brought over to Japan by Dogen Zenji, who many of you may have heard of. And ostensibly, it's about how the head cook should conduct himself in the monastery. And it's very detailed about how to cook rice and sort out the sand from the grains and all kinds of things. But essentially, it's, it's about cooking, but it's also about, it's in, in one commentary, it's subtitled on how to cook your life. Because it's a model for living. And there's some very interesting things in it. I just want to share a few of the main points which I feel are, are of relevance to developing samadhi in daily life. In it, the instructions uh, say that, there's commentary and instructions, that the, uh, ordinary cooks make wonderful meals when they have good ingredients for extraordinary people who are coming to the monastery, ordinary cooks. Really outstanding cooks make wonderful meals no matter who is there and no matter what they have to work with. And 
what it's getting at is that, let's say, um, if you know anything about Asian monasteries, the, what kinds of food you have available varies quite a bit. If lay people donate a lot of food, you can have rather rich ingredients to put something together. And if they don't, it can be quite sparse. So if there's a lot of good ingredients around, by and large, the cook is eager and interested in putting something together. There's variety and interesting condiments and all kinds of things. And so this inspires the cook to put together a delicious meal. So the, the cook is very careful with the ingredients, very attentive, very thorough, very mindful. The samadhi is really working. And if the lay people haven't turned up for a while or slim pickings for whatever reason, very often what happens is the cook handles these rather meager ingredients in a shoddy way. It becomes careless. It's a little bit like the way we get when we perhaps open up a can because we're in a hurry. In other words, this is based on what actually goes on in monasteries. So, it has to, so the quality of attention, that undividedness, seems to vary a great deal by the kind of, of foods, food stuff that's available. Also, depending on who is being served, if the emperor is coming or famous monks are visiting the monastery, it's very easy. The, the, the cooks are usually quite inspired to, of course, make an impressive meal for the honored guests. But if it's just the same old monks who've been coming there and practicing with you day in and day out for a long time, there's not much concern and there's uh, more carelessness in the preparing of the meal. And so what Dogen Zenji is pointing out is uh, this is the problem. And the real Zen cook is one who, independent of what quality of a food they have available, independent of who the guests are, is always totally alive to what they're doing, fully alert in the preparation of food, every step along the way. And they use as an example in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, Manjushri is often conceived of as a personification of wisdom. You might say the Buddha of wisdom. And so one line in the manual is that while you're preparing your meal, if Manjushri should come into your kitchen, you would just drive him out of there with your broom. Now this is like driving Jesus out. or This is a very high person, but it's trying to make the point that not now, I'm cooking. And there are just a lot of little points in it. They all are trying to develop this kind of sensitivity from a number of different directions. But it's not just about kitchens. Uh, isn't it so for all of us that it's these, some of these very same considerations? If what we're doing is ego-enhancing, we're tremendously alive. New boyfriend or new girlfriend, amazing what beautiful dishes we can concoct. But then you've been together for about 10 years. You know, here's this latest frozen food or whatever. <laughs> these new things that now with cellophane packages. Two minutes, I think I've got it down to two minutes now. Rice and a dookie beans. <laughs> it used to be three or four. It's really getting there. Soon you just eat the package or something. <laughs> And so uh, we're often, just as the, the head cook could be, very sloppy. Uh, we don't take very good care of all kinds of things, objects and, of course, even people. But then, let's say, our parents are visiting. It's amazing how beautiful the house gets, all cleaned up. No dust and everything's in place. And, or some wonderful guests. I saw that so many times at, at the center in Cambridge when we would have Tibetan Lama stopping by. It was amazing how the vacuuming and everything was just spotless. But then if my friend Tiny was coming, I don't know, just dust all over the place. So a lot of our incentive for switching the attentiveness off or on is somewhat out of our control and has to do with this same old problem of I and mine enhancing me. And if there's something in the I or mine, if there's danger or reward or money to be made, or a good impression to be made for some reason that matters to us, 
Samadhi comes to life and we're really right there and doing it. And if it isn't, we fall out of it. The practice is about developing a quality of attentiveness that cuts through all of these considerations. It's normal to be like that. Most of us are ruled by these considerations, these causes and conditions. And the practice is enabling us to develop a sufficient abiding calmness that is available to us in a wide variety of situations, not all of which we would normally be calm in or steady in or attentive in or alert in. So you can see how this is an important quality just in life in general and certainly in our in spiritual practice. Uh, I got a uh, a very wonderful training in this one time. Uh, It helped me a lot. Those of you from Cambridge can go to sleep now because you've heard it already. Or go for a drink or something like that. It takes about four and a half minutes. I don't know. I don't tell that often, but I see uh, a few familiar faces out there. Uh, Some years ago at uh, a Zen center in Cambridge, um, I used to assist a Zen master in leading retreats. We would have these three-day weekend retreats once a month. And sometimes he would be there and sometimes he wouldn't. And it was around Christmas time and we looked at the list. It was a weekend just prior or even maybe in Christmas, during Christmas. And no one had signed up for the retreat. And most of the people from the Zen Center were going various places because of the holiday. And I wasn't. I was staying there. And so I assumed I went to this teacher, who some of you know, Sansanin, a Korean Zen master who is fairly well known, visits IMS from time to time. And I said, well, I guess uh, we'll cancel that retreat over the weekend because no one's signed up and I was supposed to uh, lead it or guide it. And he looked at me and he said, why? I said, well, no one signed up. And he said, so what? What does this have to do with anything? You lead the retreat. It doesn't matter if a you know, uh, uh, hundred people are there or nobody's there. You lead the retreat. And I thought he was pulling my leg. So I laughed and I said, no, I, I'm serious. You lead the retreat. You do total retreat by yourself. I, as he was often teaching me something. And this, so I did. And if you can imagine, one person, it wasn't quite this large a hall, but it was, you know, decent size. One person doing the bowing three times and chanting in Korean and Chinese and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And uh, the first part of that felt really ridiculous because there was no one there to see it somehow, you know, to validate it or uh, I didn't realize how much me was doing it for other people, but not just to serve them, but to be confirmed by them, to be seen by them, to be, I'm the one who does this and I need you to be there so that I know it. And uh, I did everything, just as if it were a retreat, except it was just one person, including a self-imposed interview which went something like, what am I doing here? Because <laughs> <laughs> it did seem crazy for a while. I had on a robe and a little thing, queso. But after a while, somehow it cleared and it was such a wonderful relief to just practice without the concern of necessarily doing it for anyone. And, you know, after it was over, I met with Sansanim and we, of course, had a, a good laugh. And he was trying to help me be free of needing students or needing people uh, to connect with the practice in a very different way that has nothing to do with approval or any of these things which rule us a great deal. You get my drift? <laughs> in other words, the direction of samadhi has to do with being able to take, let's say, the steadiness and the calm that we're developing in a somewhat secluded and protected environment, IMS, and places like it, and gradually, little by little, being able to take it and to bring it into whatever we're doing, to take that level of steadiness, alertness, interest, this ability to uh, breathe a certain vivid quality into life, into the situations that we're in, 
an undivided quality. So that it's not reserved just for the cushion, as valuable as the very quiet kind of uh, contemplation is. It's uh, just a great way to live. It has everything to do with, with living. It's a way of living. Um, the ancients talked about it in, in certain interesting ways. One of the precepts, in a Buddhist precept, is not to kill. And the ostensible meaning we all know, not to kill any living being, not to hurt any living being. But there's, a, in some schools, a deeper and esoteric meaning, a more subtle meaning. It's not deeper, but it's different. And what they're talking about is not killing life has to do with uh, being undivided. That is, let's say you're... Um, Let's say you like to drink beer. Does anyone here like to drink beer? No beer? You do good, at least. Okay. okay. So let's say you come to a place like this, and of course you're not going to get any beer. Let's say, so you're drinking a glass of water, and while you're drinking that glass of water, if your mind is on, I wish this were a beer, you've killed the water and you've killed the beer. So you've killed life. That is, the only life we have is in that moment whatever we encounter, that is our life. Now, we don't live as if that's true, but it's really quite a stringent fact. That is, from moment to moment, wherever we are, whatever we're encountering, that is our life. Not some fantasy or idea, even that, that's happening now. So that when we're divided that way, that is, one part of us is in one place and another part of us is in another place, that is called killing life. You, haven't, you don't go to jail for it. But what happens is that consciousness is divided and you neither really have a beer nor do you really have water. And what they call giving life to life would be when you're drinking a beer to totally be drinking a beer, when you're drinking water to totally be drinking water. Now that is samadhi in action. That ability to... just Can you see the likeness to the breath? That is, we're practicing on the breath, but can you see how it's a kind of training that can be generalized and brought into whatever we're doing? Not on a, such a mic, it's not that we need a small object. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the quality of steadiness in the mind, aliveness. Um, another way of looking at it. It's not simply being concentrated. That's, or even the word samadhi, unless you've been using it a lot and experience all this, the nuances of it, uh, can miss the following point. If we go back to the breath for a moment. If you recall, sometimes the instructions are to give great care and attention to the breath. And hear that in as sensitive way as you can, even right now. To give great care and attention to the breath. Or as you... You're careful. You care about what you're attending to. You have interest in it. Now, as you, if you can develop that on the breath, it's really the very same thing in everything that we do. It's uh, a respect for life. That is, the attitude is one of... Uh, and the training is developing infinite respect. Because just as... Uh, the early examples in the monastery, that is, we don't really need a monastery. Many things come along which pull us off course, which we're not really respectful for one reason or another. And the practice has everything to do with infinite respect, being respectful to every person, everything, everything that we're doing all day long to bring that kind of care. And that's a, 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 a quality that's associated. It can only happen with samadhi. Now, sometimes, because of the respect, we have the samadhi, and that's great. But what this is pointing to is, just as in the examples by Dogen, Zenji, the respect, when you come down to it, is really respect for life. And life manifests in many different forms. But if you just have it as some abstract, poetic, romantic, ideal, love of life, reverence for life. I, I read Albert Schweitzer, I think he's correct. 
and you get all teary-eyed. That isn't the test. That's nice. But the test comes up moment by moment. And this practice is a practice of momentariness. Whatever it is you want to talk about, it can be interesting, but let's bring it back to the moment. What's happening right now? And if there is or isn't respect, is determined by the quality of the attention that we're bringing to a person, to an animal, to the food that we're preparing. You tell me, whatever the situation is. The Hasids, it's a Jewish mystical group, had an interesting way of putting it. They say that each person has a small portion of the universe entrusted to them by God. And our job is to really care for that small portion of the universe. So that means you don't have to be president of the United States. I mean, whoever you are, you know, today that part of that small portion might have been chopping the vegetables or cleaning out a toilet. Did you have a version? Was that something you, ooh? If so, that's, where, that's an edge of the practice. That means that's, that's part of the universe that's been entrusted to you to care for. And we have the tools. It's mindfulness, all the things we're developing. I think all the great religions talk about it in one way or another, whether it's called presence or mindfulness undividedness, samadhi, there's a lot of words for it. But it's a way of bringing the practice into our life. It's a way of spiritualizing in a concrete way the daily situations that make up our life so that it doesn't become fragmented, so we don't think that the practice is only done in sacred and holy places like Buddhist monasteries or churches or special rooms in our house or IMS. But we understand that wherever we are is a perfect place to practice. It's perfect because that's where we are. And the practice is meant to be, it's a way of living. And so it, it, it obviously must be that way. If we can only practice in very secluded, protected situations, which are very useful to strengthen ourselves, to also soften ourselves, to develop, to mature spiritually. But if we can only do that, it's a bit like being a hothouse plant. And, as many people experience, when you leave a retreat like this, we, we develop a new kind of schizophrenia, where we have this wonderful IMS and tears streaming down your cheeks. I can't leave it. I love the place and the meals are so nice and the staff. So it's beautiful. And I have to go back to and plug in wherever you have to go back to. And then we develop this split. I, and then you go there and your mind is totally on the retreat that you did. People are saying... Uh, do you have the time? Oh, it was wonderful there that we didn't have to bother with the time. They rang a bell and we just knew everything. <laughs> and then the mind is also scheming how it can raise money to go on the next retreat. In the meantime, our life is ticking by, maybe months. Some people live that way. Three-month retreat once a year and the rest of the time either reminiscing or planning how they're going to do the next three-month retreat. Now, if you can develop, encourage yourself to see that the practice is in all the small occasions that make up our, our day. That is, um, if you can put some interest into that and develop it, I think what you'll find is that the movement from IMS, from out of this retreat to home, is not so harsh. It can be more and more of one piece. If you get fixated on just the sitting, then, of course, when you leave here, it's going to seem like a very black and white world. Out there, it's all noisy and dirty and people are insensitive. Here, it's just wonderful. Everyone is kind and vegetarian and so forth. So I would encourage you to use the remainder of the retreat to develop the very same qualities that we're developing in the sitting and in the walking. In the walking, taking just the experience of the foot, just feeling a touch ground, feeling the earth or the floor, wherever we are gaining that sense. And again there, also not taking things for granted because that's really a lot of what's being said here. We tend to take things for granted or not care. We take things for granted because they're so obstinately familiar to us. We've walked up and down the same street a thousand times so we're not alert. 
you know, we've washed dishes two million times or changed the toilet paper two million times and we just do it. And it's by road. It's like a machine. We take it for granted. Uh, some people don't have legs. They can't do walking meditation. Teach Nhat Han, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, in one of his little books on walking meditation, has some very moving descriptions of uh, people who were severely hurt in the Vietnamese War, Vietnamese people, who came to retreats and couldn't walk, or they couldn't put their palms together because they only had one arm. And uh, in one, I don't remember if it was in that book, but some other occasion, described someone sitting there just uh, full of joy at being at the retreat, but tears streaming down their cheeks because they couldn't do the walking meditation. And Thich Nhat Hanh devised this uh, brilliant form of walking meditation so that people without any legs were sitting there watching the people who were doing the walking meditation and, and developing their samadhi and their mindfulness on other people's walking. Any questions or comments about your own practice in terms of um, bringing attentiveness into daily life? Any of you try, been trying that during the retreat? Attempting to be a little bit more alert in terms of dressing and all the odds and ends that make up a day? Anyone have anything to report about that or any questions about it? Perhaps you found that you've forgotten to do it. If so, that's normal. Most of us do. And that's why I'm saying the things I am. We all have to rouse ourselves. Arouse ourselves to see this aspect of practice or it won't happen. I'm patient. I can wait a few minutes. I would like to ask about the walking. Sure. Uh, the Vipassana meditation has a specific walking meditation, but it's very slow. No, that's not true. There, Within uh, Vipassana, there are many, uh, as in any of these teachings, many different schools and styles. The, the the reason that people think it's slow is that one school, the Mahasi Sayadaw school, which has been, is very prominent in the United States, uh, it's a Burmese approach. So it's hard to do that. You do, you're like doing that Well, what's the problem? Why the, the the issue isn't quick or slow, really. It's it's are you awake while you're walking? Uh, the slow walking has certain obvious advantages. You can get very concentrated and calm down, and some disadvantages. Uh, when you do a lot of it, it's very it's, you're not practicing walking the way you walk in daily life. When you leave here, you don't walk that way. If you walk naturally and develop awareness while walking naturally, that immediately transfers to wherever you're going from here. And that has certain disadvantages. Uh, it's easier to space out on the natural walking because we've done so much of it, it's hard for us to think of it as being, in quotes, a spiritual practice. But it is. Uh, whereas when we walk very slowly, it seems kind of holy. It, it, there's nothing sacred about slow. It's just slow. But if your mind is uh, very scattered... Slow would probably be much more helpful. If your mind is very sleepy, then more rapid walking would probably get some energy going. I would, uh, to look at it as uh, 
people have different tendencies and interests. And don't get caught on the speed. The, the main thing is, is the meditative mind at work while you're walking? Is there really attentiveness at whatever speed? Yeah, you can, uh, when you're walking at a rapid rate, the, you're not going to have as precise sensations. But it doesn't mean that that is invaluable. The key thing is, did you retain your wakefulness? Now also, just to understand the, the richness of walking meditation, one way is to, uh, is to pay attention to the sensations in the feet or the legs or the whole body eventually when it becomes easy to do. But you can do, uh, in some schools, uh, for example, in Thailand, they'll do walking meditation where you're not really so interested in the body at all. You're just watching the mind directly while you're walking. But I wouldn't try that until you, until you really feel very calm. Or you can do a, be doing certain reflections. You can be uh, setting a theme for yourself, like impermanence, and just seeing that, no matter how you're walking. How about, that's also a formal practice. Uh, what I'm interested in is the miscellaneous small actions that make up our day. You know, getting dressed, undressed, taking a shower. Yes? At that moment, I understand. We all know what you're talking about. Uh, the quality of your life is not quite what it could be. And the quality doesn't necessarily have to do with the activity. We're very chained to, to things and objects and situations. If nice things happen, then this is great. But let's say you're doing a real... What were you doing? <laughs> I was uh, cleaning the toilets. Cleaning the <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Can one find happiness in cleaning the toilets? <laughs> well, there's great joy in cleaning the toilets, but it's not in the toilet. It's in you. The toilet is just what you happen to be doing at that time. That's the point. So that it would be good to do a good job, and that's part of it. You want to leave that toilet clean. I mean, if spiritual life has to do with just getting all inside and everything else is in shambles, that I don't know what what we're adding to the planet, frankly. Uh, but also, when you're really attentive, you're more alive, more fully alive. And so, those are real moments in your life. And so, your encounter with the toilet is a real piece of your life at that moment. It's true. And for all of us, our life is made up of many, many of these small, seemingly insignificant moments. Now, we, we are divided so often in those moments that there's a deadening effect that carries over that's part of our life. What the practice is an attempt to do is to wake us up. And it's not, this isn't just the only room that we're allowed to be awake in. This is a, a device to help us. It's, and the sitting posture is a jewel. But if we get attached to it and fixated with it at the expense of other things, then we're really not carrying out the teaching correctly. Yes? Um, like I was mentioning to you, what, what I'm been watching and finding is, I mean, I'm always spacing out, but I'm more with stuff when I'm doing something. I've been noticing today a, a lot, um, after I mentioned it, is in the transportation is when I lose it. You know, I, I'm all right getting dressed, but then you know, I'm all right once I get to the bathroom. But in between the two, 
is where I lose it. Okay. So then, you, since one of the things is very helpful is beginning to see systematic ways in which inattentiveness exists for each one of us has our own pattern. Sometimes it's, it's where anxiety is. There's a strong relationship between anxiety and inattentiveness. But it could be just you know habitual. For no, let's say you've you've isolated that and you see that getting from A to B is always where you go to sleep. So then, when you finish something, pause. Take it on. Make it into a special practice for yourself. Pause and form the intention to get just just do that. Just to get from where you just got dressed to the bathroom fully awake. See if you can do that. It may seem like it's such a small thing, but if you can remember and then do it one time, then it's the beginning of stretching your mind, and it's the beginning of all new kinds of new possibilities. One of the practices the uh, old Theravada monks used to do in India at the time of this teaching, they'd be walking into a town uh, and trying to pay attention, fully attentive while walking into town. If they realize at a certain point, oh, I lost it back at that oak tree, they would just go back to there and start all over. Or there was one monk who any time, people thought he was very weird for a long time, until they found out what it was about. Uh, if he was talking and if any of his gestures were done unconsciously, he would just do it over again. <laughs> and do it consciously. Or if a person, and I would say, I, I have done the, I've done that walking one, by the way. It can be, don't overdo it. But, uh, <laughs> um, if you get undressed or dressed and you realize that you've blown it, you know, you've done the whole thing on automatic pilot, just do it again. Only this time, do it slowly and carefully and see what it feels like. In fact, we can all try tomorrow morning. Let's see if we can just take a shower. See if you can just take a shower. That means just take a shower. Not take a shower and figure, you know, let's see, one of the choices come, well, I take the, uh, uh, the roasted, um, uh, see, the roasted, what are those? At breakfast. Sunflower seeds or and the tahini or just the tahini. Uh, I don't know if that combines to a, I think a, uh, just take a shower. In other words, when you see the mind, it's, it's very much like the breath. You're taking a shower and the mind is clearly doing all kinds of other things. As soon as you notice it, come back to just feeling the water on you or just the soap or just the rag, whatever it is. And then your mind will leave again and then you come back gently again. Do you see how it's not any different? Well, it's through doing it, doing it, doing it, and eventually we become it. We, it becomes part of our character. Yes? That's a kalesa. That's a kalesa decked out as something good. See, it's greed. It's okay. You're forgiven. You can have another week of sinning. It's all right. Physical jobs here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I end up just, you know, saying, oh, now I'm going to be really tired, and I'll sit in the meditation, and I'll be shifting, and everyone will hate me. And then, you know, the rest of the Okay, but you see, they're just thoughts. Just as if with your breath, those thoughts came up. You know, you've had plenty of thoughts that have also been trying to... Don't pay attention to the breath, pay attention to me. Same thing. What are the jobs? What? Um, just 
okay, great. When you're scrubbing the pots and, the, and whatever it is that comes up, hear it for what they are. Those are thoughts. And come back to the pots. Come back to vacuuming. It's not that different. And now, at first, and, and be very soft and very gentle. You'll be exhausted. But the training is valuable. If you come back just once or twice, you can feel the difference. It's what you're saying. You know, you, oh, you know, just very different to, let's say, scrub pots and to be fully at one with that activity. Good. Okay, those are moments that are, that's giving life to life. That's what the ancients meant. Can you imagine if those moments started to spread? Now, they do spread. It's not, it would be kind of tedious if the only way it would spread is by doing it one thing at a time. And that's the only thing that's going to help us. That does help us. But as the practice gets deeper, not, out, not doing pots or vacuuming, some of that radius is carried with us. Some of that awareness is carried with us and it becomes just a lot easier to stay awake in whatever we're doing. Both are necessary. In, other words, in the sitting practice, as you go deeper, some of that will follow you, particularly if you're willing to try to stay awake while doing things. Both are necessary. Well, and you get you have lots to learn there. Yeah. We have time for one more comment or question. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.